Welcome to Fact and Science Fiction, the Clexicon Edition. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at Clexicon, the largest multi-fandom convention for LGBTQ women and allies. Due to some audio issues, you may hear some low buzzing and other undesirable sounds due to the recording equipment and the audience being farther away from the microphones. I just want to put that out there, so please forgive me. We talk about the effects of media representation on queer and heterosexual youth, the state of representation of women in sci-fi, as well as long tangents on Carmilla and the 100. So without any further ado, here is Fact and Science Fiction Live. Uh, welcome to Fact and Science Fiction. Um, I'm your host, Carly, and with me today is Michelle from... Something in the Air. Something in the Air. Sorry, I had rehearsed that. Um, <laughs> so, um, usually my uh, podcast is about the real science behind science fiction, and each episode is about a different theme or trope in science fiction, but because I'm a queer woman... Um, Pretty early on, I was interested in the real science behind um, gender and sexuality and why science fiction is known to be more diverse and more inclusive. Um, And when I was in uh, grad school studying communication, um, I learned a lot about media theory and critical analysis and sociology. And so I wanted to kind of condense all of that um, in a podcast so I know it's the last day of Plexicon, um, Sunday afternoon, so it's going to be a little bit of heavy stuff, but hopefully it's all interesting. So first I wanted to talk about Plexicon um, because I think it's uh, really important that we have this event and also kind of notice the trends here. Like I don't think it's a um, coincidence that most of the fandoms present and most of the television shows present are in the science fiction category. Uh, I feel that, and we're going to discuss that later, uh, that there's something about um, science fiction that queer women um, and non-binary folks just happen to like latch onto and that we really feel inspired by. And that's what I want to talk to uh, talk about today. Um, So first of all, uh, why is science fiction known for being more diverse and more inclusive, and why do we love it so much? And it was really those two questions that kind of informed all of my research. So I recently read a book um, called Alien Constructions, uh, a book about feminism and science fiction, and um, the author wrote, uh, science fiction stories can create blueprints of uh, social theories. Only within genres of the fantastic is it possible to imagine completely new social orders and ways of being that differ radically from human existence as we know it. And it's not so uh, different from the storytelling engaged by sociologists and anthropologists, save for the fact that it, science fiction tends to focus not on origins, like where we were, but where we can go as a society. And um, it help us, helps us to like imagine uh, future worlds, and it can uh, science fiction can offer important insights into the limits of the imaginable. Um, you know, from housewives in space to gender-free utopias and beyond. I think that that goes back, that goes down to the basis of storytelling. 
Like we tell stories to um, pass on lessons or to imagine new worlds where things can be different. So science fiction just kind of opens you up to a world where you can create anything that you want and kind of project it and sort of create it into a reality that you can adapt like this world into. Yeah, and I and I think that science fiction asks a lot of questions that we as queer people um, ask about the world that we live in today. Like, what is what is the in group? What is us? What is them? Um, you know, if we feel like othered by society, um, there are a lot of stories in science fiction that ask those same questions, just with you know stakes really high and with a lot of like hypotheticals. Um, you know, what is us when? What is us versus them when we exist in a, you know, uh, a universe with a bunch of different races, like species? Um, I think the reason that science fiction is kind of more open is because stories that are based in our current reality, like we live in a very patriarchal society. So the norm is to base stories in that framework. And in science fiction, you can create anything you want. So you can create, you know, Thymascara, a world full of women and just create that world and imagine that world and then take some of the lessons from that world and try to apply it to this world. Yeah, definitely. And um, as queer people, as women, we've kind of discovered through, you know, just existing in this world that this world, this society was created for a very specific uh, subject, Um, you know, this straight, white, cisgendered male, and then we exist in a kind of on the fringes and, you know, in the margins and science fiction also, uh, talks about those marginalized, um, communities a lot. So they, uh, in graduate school, I found two kind of communication theories that I want you guys to like, you can hold in your back pocket and you can see it. Once I tell you about it, you're going to be able to like, Oh, I, this definitely makes sense. I've seen this a lot. And because, uh, since the be since, mass media kind of through newspapers, through radio, um, came out on the scene. Researchers have been studying like what effect does this have on us when, you know, millions of people can receive the same message over and over again, what effect does that have on us? And the first theory that kind of, uh, tried to explain these media effects is the cultivation theory which uh, it posits that people who consume a type of media more frequently are more likely to believe the media as true and valid. Uh, So cultivation effects um, are typically found in studies of media violence. So the people who consume media or violent media more often tend to believe the world is a a meaner place, that violence is just um, more frequent than people who do not consume that media. And then they've also studied this effects um, for representations of men of color. So uh, they tend to be portrayed as uh, criminals, as, um, you know, working class. And so people who consume that media tend to believe that as as true. So um, there hasn't been a lot of research as far as uh, queer representation and representations of women, but I don't think it's a a stretch. You know, you hear it and you're like, this makes sense. Um, We, as a group of queer people, we, you know, consume a lot of the same stories. And what does that say to us when most of the characters die? 
Um, what does that say to us when most of the when most of the bi characters are portrayed in a, in a you know bad in a negative way? I think like the fact that there's a convention right now <laughs> on exactly that that's based off of the fact that 2016 was just the barrier gaze year mm-hmm. is proof of that exactly. And just like you know we are negatively affected by these negative portrayals by the barrier gaze trope. We are also inspired by portrayals like in 2018. Um, there have been a lot of uh, good stuff happening and that affects um, our mental health, that affects uh, the our emotional responses. And so uh, we can imagine, so let's imagine a cultivation effect on the LGBT community, watching the queer character have happy endings, um, how that can have a reverse effect. Uh, the other theory that I felt really kind of explained what um, LGBT representation and representations of women have on us is called the narrative persuasion theory. And basically, we as viewers are transported into a narrative, and we start to believe that these narratives and identify with the characters. Uh, we feel like we are in their shoes and that their their goals are our goals. Um, so uh, it's, it's basically an experience in which uh, readers or viewers adopt the perspective of a character and see the narrative events through their eyes. I can say personally that happens to me all the time. <laughs> like, I'm obsessed with TV, and there's characters like Clark Griffin and, like, Winona Earp and all of them, and I relate to them in a lot of ways, and it makes me feel like I could go out there and, like, kick ass mm-hmm. and do whatever I want to do and pretend that I could actually do the things that they do. I mean, I can't, but... So um, one study that I found uh, which used the narrative persuasion theory as like a theoretical framework, um, it was called Fostering Support for LGBTQ Youth, the Effects of a Gay Adolescent Media Portrayal on Young Viewers. So uh, the researchers showed heterosexual and queer youth ages 13 to 21. I feel like that's a really large age gap. Um, Clips of Jude and Connor from The Fosters. Have you guys seen The Fosters? It was the most heartwarming story of, you know, really young teens. Um, I think they were just 14. And so, and it was the youngest same-sex kiss up until that point um, aired on network television or cable television. So one group of these youths uh, watched a compilation of clips of Jude and Connor. And then the other group or the control troll group didn't watch any clips and then uh, all of them answered a bunch of surveys that asked them about their emotional responses asked about their attitudes toward uh, queer people and then they compared those groups and I just want to share with you these really interesting findings um, uh, that basically the response that the queer youth had towards these clips So among heterosexual and cisgender youth, those who viewed the video reported more negative attitudes toward LGBTQ people and issues than those who did not view it. So, yeah, that's um, kind of interesting. You'd think that once they would see a positive portrayal of queer youth, that they'd feel more positive about it. But unfortunately, the researchers found what they call a boomerang effect, and that happens when Basically, yeah, gay people are okay, but don't shove it down my throat. So now it's starting to sound a little bit familiar. And it's really unfortunate that that happens to even 13 to 21-year-olds. 
I think that also comes from like on the theoretical, it's easy to accept a concept, mm-hmm. but when you're faced with that concept, it challenges what you view as like the truth of your reality. So when you see that, you can easily turn against it because it's just not something you're used to. So on a theoretical level, you're like, yeah, gay people are fine, but when you see it, that's just not something that is in your realm. So you're offended by it because it forces you to change your view on the world. Yeah. And, um, and unfortunately, they found so they asked the participants to uh, rate how strongly they felt on a scale for several different emotions. And uh, heterosexual male respondents um, basically had higher disgust rating than the others, which we can unpack that. Why that? Uh, why straight uh, straight male youths um, felt that way toward. Um, young gay boys, uh, I think a lot of toxic masculinity um, had a lot to do with that. So, uh, and they kind of found that uh, effect even in the group that watched the video. Males who viewed the, the, the narrative or the clips experienced more negative attitudes than females who viewed the narrative. Um, what Regardless of sexual orientation, females tended to identify more with Jude than um, than males, and uh, so that was kind of the the bummer finding. And so that was the in the control group and the narrative group. But what was really um, interesting to me was that LGBTQ youth um, experienced higher levels of identification with Jude than their um, heterosexual counterparts and higher levels of identification with Connor. So they saw themselves in those queer characters. Um, I think that the overall like lower view by men overall just kind of highlights like the patriarchal construct of the society. Mm. It's just kind of ingrained, even if they are homosexual, that they're going to feel more negatively towards it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then when they ask them for their different emotional responses, you know, rate on a scale of 1 to 10, um, how you felt uh, watching these videos, and uh, the emotional responses and the narr- to the clips diverge dramatically. So... Uh, indicating that portrayals of same-sex relationships um, are beneficial to the psychological health and well-being of of queer youth. So there was a huge difference in emotional responses between straight participants and queer participants, uh, particularly in the positive emotions. So the top three positive emotions for queer youth that diverged dramatically, like if you can imagine a chart like queer youth, um, the strongest positive emotion was happiness. So they just felt happier after watching a positive portrayal of, of two queer teens. Um, and then uh, the second strong emo- strongest emotion was hope. Um, and like the uh, like it on average, queer teens, uh, queer youth scored 7.93 on hope, and the uh, heterosexual youth scored 3.11. So not even average, not even in the middle, like below. I think also if like the emotional responses to seeing positive portrayal, if you think back to 2016, anybody who watched a lot of TV, like overall, at least me personally, I was really depressed and like a really overall shitty mood because like every few weeks, like a queer character was getting killed 
And now in like 2018 or 2018, like I'm a lot more positive because um, I'm seeing like happy couples and it's like hopeful because maybe that could actually happen. So like even like just personally, anybody who was involved in watching 2016 go down and now like I feel like you could probably feel the difference. Yeah. Um, I used to recap um, the 100 for autostraddle.com and it was a it was during season three, and yeah, so I uh, I was also in the middle of graduate school, and I had to recap three, you know, three oh seven, and you know, it was it was just hard, and it was actually um, the hardest part was was the episode of Lex's funeral. Um, that was the last recap of the 100. Well, I actually did a short a recap of the finale because that was when Lexa came back for, you know, well. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and that was really hard. And I feel like that definitely impacted my mental health. Uh, it was also, you know, the stress of graduate school, but also how do I explain how bad this feels when it's a television show. Um, how do I, how will this make sense to people that I feel like I can't watch television anymore because this is basically the last straw. Um, I feel a lot better now. Um, some ships have come along, uh, that make me feel a little bit better. Uh, for example, Holstein is Endgame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I remember in 2016 after Alexa died I, like my mom and I talked like every single day and she called me after that and she was like what's wrong like you sound really off and I had just a complete meltdown and she was freaked out because it was over a tv show <laughs> and um it took a long time for her to understand that a I'm like addicted to tv <laughs> and b after like me lecturing her over and over again about like the importance of storytelling she's kind of catching on to it now um, and like, she's told me that she's noticed a difference that overall, like, I'm like not as negative, um, just like overall less like depressed. Um, and I explained to her like that it's because of TV, like there are positive relationships. Like I'm riding the avalanche ship hard <laughs> and it, <laughs> it's an understatement. <laughs> All right. I may be captaining the ship. Um, I'm in a good mood. <laughs> Yeah, I felt like it was also um, a big help to kind of explain to people when um, the the Trevor Project and all the, the 100 and Lexa fans um, kind of organized, uh, you know, I got, I just reminded me about when I was trying to explain to my mom and I got to show her like the Entertainment Weekly um, article about how much money the um, Lexa fandom raised for the Trevor Project because of because of this. So, um, so yeah, uh, we, we experience you know, profound sadness sometimes, but also happiness and hope and empathy, um, just because of, of watching this on TV. I think that's remarkable. And I hope that more, um, social sciences kind of realize just how powerful it is for minorities. Um, I feel sometimes they, uh, for different groups, they're kind of get getting uh, onto this research track. This study that came out about the fosters literally was published 
February 22nd, 2016. So they, they, I wonder if it had come out a little bit after um, what they would have said and what they would have studied. It'd be interesting to see results pre-307 and post-307. Mm-hmm. I feel like they would be vastly skewed in other directions. Yeah, especially among, you know, ages three, uh, 13 to 21, which is the, the research group for this study. So um, sexual orientation, like what counts as good representation? Uh, science fiction represents sexual orientation in kind of a, a uh, very broad sense. There's a lot of science fiction that portrays a lot of communities that you know, sexuality is just, you know, whatever it is. There are no labels. Um, there's just, you know, a character can have a relationship with a same-sex person and nobody will say anything about it. Um, that happened in the show Defiance on Sci-Fi Network. I don't know if any of you watched that show. Um, I know Legends of Tomorrow is just... Whatever. <laughs> yeah, Sarah can do whatever she wants. Yeah. I think also an interesting thing, too, is when you see a TV show, and it's really, I'm so sorry for making this reference, um, when you see a TV show like Supergirl where like there was this whole big journey of Alex coming out because it's in based in like our world, and then you have, I don't know, who comes along and is just like, oh, is that, like, an issue on this planet? Because where he's from, it's not a big thing. So kind of seeing the intersection between, like, a fantasy realm and, like, our realm intersect and how in that realm we can, there can be any rules and we don't need to to project what we view here as normal. Yeah, and uh, another example was... um Torchwood and Doctor Who, Captain Jack Harkness, who was like, oh, you silly humans in your categories. Um, And a lot of science fiction, I think, operates in that kind of world. I, for one, uh, you know, think that there should be a balance between science fiction in which, you know, anything goes as long as you're a consenting adult, um, but also, you know, have stories like Alex in which, you know, we have a rich history in which we had to fight for, you know, our right to marry, to walk down the street. And um, I don't think science fiction should, like, leave that, should forget that to move to these kind of utopias. You know, I'd like to see a character um, that had to deal with a lot of uh, homophobia or, or biphobia and get to say, like, I'm bisexual or I'm gay and also pilot a spaceship. So, <laughs> um, so uh, and um, science fiction kind of gets that idea of, um, you know, queerness or, or straightness is just whatever it is because uh, sexuality is, um, it's social, it's biological, um, it's a mix of both. Uh, humans can grow, we can shift identities as we learn new language to describe ourselves. Um, and so, uh, it, uh, earlier in the Legend of Tomorrow podcast or panel, um, both Macy and Katie basically said, and like this is going right what it is, when people try to shove you in a box, like it's complete rubbish because like everything is fluid and everything's constantly changing. So trying to define anything at all is really pretty stupid because you're just creating a more 
us versus them mentality. Like any single time you try to like stick something in a box, we're just breaking up our society further and further and further and further, creating just more and more conflict. Um, yeah, science fiction can can do that too, um, because while it depicts a lot of just human relationships and you know men and women and um, you know gender non-binary people. I want to talk about this book I just read um, that really uh, portrayed gender non-binary as just completely normal and natural, and it's actually polite to just use uh, gender-neutral pronouns before you, you know, meet anybody and find it, and it's totally natural and good manners. Um, And so, uh, but... Science fiction also portrays a lot of tribalism, you know, even if it's very accepting of, you know, queer people and queer relationships uh, to the point where it's not even a big deal. It's still like an us versus them. You know, there's still a lot of conflict because stories are built on conflict, but science fiction can still get caught in these tropes of imperialism, of colonialism, of, you know, any kind of... uh, Phobia, And so what I like about uh, certain science fiction is that it makes you question that. It like it will show you like maybe a reverse mirror of our society and you'll like identify with it. But it's different and it'll make you question, um, you know, some of our assumptions. So um, back in the pulp era, so like. 1940s to 19 through the 1960s um, science fiction was very stereotypical this is the kind of stuff that is made fun of in mystery science theater 3000 and like old comic books Um, so you'll see that so it's like uh, uh, one critic called it intergalactic suburbia in which women characters could have some Uh, could have superpowers or, you know, queer people could exist like a character would go to another planet in which it's like matriarchal or is completely gender neutral. Um, But then there'll still be like women are still expected to be like middle class suburban housewives. And um, it's mostly white and, you know, all the characters are mostly white or aliens um, and that's it. So, yeah, there's definitely uh, tribalism and a lot of stereotypes and assumptions in science fiction, even when it can be accepting of other groups. Uh, I think that also goes to who's writing the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's, like, a cishet white guy and they're trying to write something that expands out of, you know, the scope of what they know, it's still going to be flavored by what their opinions are. So even if they're trying to reach out, so if like now we're having content that's being created by women, queer women, people of color, and we're seeing like out of that pulp era, we're seeing a vast difference to what that kind of stuff was. Yeah. And, um, science fiction in the pulp era took a lot of, um, inspiration from social Darwinism. So yeah, a lot of ideas of what men, real men are and what women are supposed to be that, uh, so like aliens or male characters were supermen. They had super, uh, abilities and they often competed over like damsels in distress. 
And that was the kind of standard, you know, timeline or standard uh, format for science fiction. Um, it's, uh, it's the idea that men needed to be strong and alpha to survive and women had to be smart and manipulative and private to win the best men. Um, but then even if women had superpowers back then, like they still weren't strong enough. They still had to be rescued. And uh, we kind of see this, these ideas still in like action B movies that are released um, today. And we see those ideas um, on like men's rights activism <laughs> message boards and the alt-right. Um, and, and we have to go back to that idea of cultivation effects. What are these ideas are being perpetuated over and over, um, even if they're subtle now uh, than they were in the pulp era? Like, what is that having an effect on, on people today? So uh, now let's jump back uh, and talk about why do women love science fiction so much, considering it can perpetuate a lot of troubling ideas that we're trying to break out of. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, a lot of it is like in-group and out-group and how women can, uh, we realize hopefully that this uh, society is built for men in the, you know, men to have the power, men to have the authority, and women have to fight against that. And a lot of stories in science fiction are about that. So um, early feminist theory realized that stories often characterized women as the other um, and also was very similar to machines. Um, we call machines, ships, you know, she. Um, they're supposed to be subservient to um, men, even if it's like artificial intelligence or robots or what have you. And women, we just exist in that world already. Um, and we'd like to see resistance against that. So when you talk about characters um, like Sarah Connor, characters like Ellen Ripley, um, characters, you know, that were represented here this weekend. Yeah, pretty much all the <laughs> shows present. Winona Earp, even Orphan Black, you had Sarah Manning fighting against everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, the book I read, Alien Constructions, called them female, they called them symbols of resistance against the, you know, hegemony. And uh, Princess Leia is another one. And through identification and narrative persuasion, um, we're transported into those narratives and we identify with those characters and we see ourselves in them. I think, like, examples of that is if you look at the signs from, like, the Women's March, the number of them that were referencing, like, Commander Leia and other, like, sci-fi characters as motivation or inspiration for being at the march and for trying to make change. Yeah, and what's, uh, you know, with the March for Our Lives movement and, like, the uh, gun control movement, it was, like, you know, all the things I said saw online was like these kids were raised off the Hunger Games, raised on Harry Potter, and you should have seen this coming. Um, because, yeah, of, of these characters that I, they identify with and they kind of cast, um, you know, these institutions um, as something to resist against. And um, I don't think that's going away ever until, um, you know, society sees a real change. So, um, 
I recently talked to, I had an interview this morning with um, Marlene Forte and from Altered Carbon, which Altered Carbon, if you haven't watched, uh, it's an, a series about the idea if uh, our consciousness could be downloaded into little chips and then you can put those chips in other bodies. So in that effect, um, we could, our consciousness could live forever but the only people who can really afford bodies or good bodies are the rich people. So it's a society in which the 1% could live forever. And it kind of thinks out that hypothesis as to who would suffer the most. Um, and unfortunately, it's brutal. It's kind of hard to watch sometimes because it's, it's women, it's women of color, it's sex workers, um, and uh, it's all about, you know, the people who are trying to resist that power and, and how, to, how to win against that. And I got to talk to Marlene Forte, and we were uh, kind of discussing uh, just how hard it kind of was to watch as, as, um, as people who are worried about these kinds of technologies coming to pass. And... Uh, she basically said that, you know, you have to keep your eye on it. You have to keep your eye on, you know, we have to keep your, our eye on who has the power and who is making these technologies, who is making these stories, and, and how that all has an effect on us. So um, I guess that's all my research that I did for that. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to have like a... A segment if you had any questions, if you had any comments about your favorite science fiction, how it represents gender and sexuality. I'm going to open up the floor. If not, I'm just going to talk more about the stuff I like. <laughs> I think it's important, too, when you're talking about the cult era, mm -hmm. how women were often, if they were smart and capable, were they mm -hmm. So I think that's another, like, it was a very negative yeah yeah they had to be have to be manipulative and like I said that that idea is still really present among um, men's rights activists that they're you know just trying to just trying to trap you and um, it's yeah it's really it's still really prevalent prevalent. I think it, in that era, um, a lot of tropes were developed and it's really difficult to get rid of tropes just because they become like a staple in how we tell stories. So phasing those out is really difficult because you kind of have to create new tropes that trump those. And it's just, it's very difficult to change the way that we tell stories. Yeah. Because there's something about also science fiction that, um, uh, that we can that we like to recognize like Star Wars was basically the same story um, from Greek mythology um, the hero's journey and we still see that over and over and over again except the hero's journey is still always white male which you know Star Wars is redoing that with Rey and stuff but um, as far as like other movies that come out um, it's still pretty heterosexist and yeah. yeah well I mean 
Like, I know people are surprised, but I love Kermit a lot. What? Well, <laughs> no, that's shocking. shocking. But, one of, but one of my favorite things about that show, I mean, there are many, but the character of Danny Lawrence, um, absolutely in any other show would have been a male character. Mm-hmm. And um, just the way that character was written so easily could have been a man but wasn't. And the way that sort of developed and, and you know, like overprotectiveness, and they really... I mean, I'm a full steam shipper through, mm-hmm. but I just really liked the way they added that. I when I started Carmilla, I didn't. I saw a clip on a Tumblr between Carmilla and Mora and Will, and I thought Will was the like uh, going to be the character that kind of went between them and had no idea that. Wow, because they like Carmilla too. But that I really like that about that whole storyline was it absolutely could and it would have been a story we had seen a lot mm-hmm. where you know the male interest is there and, and getting away so I mean again I could talk about that but that was probably one of my one of the things I really liked that they did I think the reason that people latch on to Carmilla so much is because they pretty much refuse to have guys in any role other than being like like the friend zone guy I hate yeah. using that word but that's pretty much what it was the most yeah the most like unthreatening yes um basically a guy puppy. ever yeah puppy um, Kirsch uh, yeah so they filled every other role with women um with women and non-binary people and kind of proved that like you don't need a guy in those roles you can put anybody in and it's still an interesting story and it's still compelling yeah, and, and just the um, queer representation, not just the representation of, you know, women with agency, but just how, like, I remember watching Carmilla for the first time and, and Laura having a crush on Danny, and Danny just has, is just like her, you know, really tall, cute TA. And just, and yeah, we've seen that story a million times, but, you know, Sharon Bell walks through the door and it's like, that's Danny. And, and then I was like, and that's not even, that's not even the main ship of the show. Like there's more. (laughs) Um, yeah, it was amazing. Um, and, and just how I also love the, uh, portrayal of, um, Carmilla and Laura's relationship, um, because they didn't fall into like, well, she, she has a jealous girlfriend and that's why they can't be together. Or, um, it was like, no, we have different views of the world and that's going to be our main conflict throughout the seasons is that I have a plan for the future and you, uh, you know, that's 300 year old lazy person doesn't. And, uh, you know, you're so moral relativist that I can't, you know, can't be with you. And, and so that was their main conflict. And I thought that was also really refreshing and a, a subverting of the, the tropes that, yeah, we've seen so many times before. And also in the movie, the fact that they were an established couple mm-hmm. and the drama wasn't about their relationship like they were strong through it and they dealt with it there was drama from whatever character Dom played um, so the, their ship was strong yeah exactly yeah it wasn't he has a dark Waverly yeah it wasn't like Elle was trying to get in between them it was like she had her own beef with Carmilla and and so that was her conflict so yeah they 
I mean, I could I could also talk about Carmelo over and over again. Yeah, I'll just add sorry, one other quick thing when you're talking. Sorry, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. I just mm-hmm. to stop you from my podcast. But for, in season two, when, when you, I watched season two, I know people have a lot of problems with that season, but I watched that season like with my eyes closed thinking that Danny and, Car- and Laura were going to have something to rebound, like what you're saying, with, from Carmilla, and they never mm-hmm. approached that and just let their drama play out. And I think they did a really good job of not falling into a lot of tropes. Who says something bad about season two? A lot. A lot of I like really? Season. I love it. Yeah. I don't know, like, because I watched season. Yeah. I watched season. <laughs> I, watched season. I, watched season. Like, I watched season two as it happened, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. Although it was, there got a lot of hate on season two. Did they not but, see Carmel and Laura's hair in that season? <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people. I, I loved season two. Mm-hmm. I've only seen it once, but I loved it the one time I watched it. <laughs> but they broke up for real reasons, not because Danny got in the way or anything. Right. It was, I just. I, I, I'll stop. No, that's okay. Uh, anyone else want to talk about another thing? Not Carmilla? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. The science fiction of the 100. I, I didn't watch past 307, uh, but up until that point, what the hell? <laughs> I just, the science fiction, it was, if you go and learn about nuclear reactors and all that. Ra- yeah, radiation and um, yeah, you need a, a lot of suspension of disbelief. Bone marrow is a renewable resource. Radiation doesn't turn you into dust. <laughs> it, yeah, it just, you have to, sus- like, there has to be so much suspension of disbelief because none of their science makes sense at all. I'm an engineer and sometimes I just go, like, some of the people in the audience can attest to the rants that I go on because of that's not how science works. Mm-hmm. But you kind of got to put that aside and just like go with the story because like I still watch the show um, and I watch it for character development because honestly they don't really know how to tell a story. But <laughs> the character development is great. Um, yeah, uh, I can't speak to the science in that show because. Uh, because you're right, it's, it's not really about the science. They don't really care about that. Like it's acid. Like they promoted it that way. Uh-huh. And then, oh, they're so socially conscious of, of, and they're so advanced on, you know, women are to be in charge. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was given to uh-huh. us, fed to us through the media, and then we watch it, and it's, that's our lie. And, and that's a good uh, good example of that kind of that tribalism, um, because I mean the the grounders versus the sky people and um, like the uh, the adults of the sky people basically just wanting to colonize the grounders and just landing on the earth and being like this is ours now. Um, the character Pike. Uh, in season three was just horrendous. Um, and I, I think that a lot of it is, um, so the sky people were up in space trying to preserve society, trying to preserve a patriarchal society. So you had like Jaha and Kane fighting for stuff. And then when they got to the ground, they couldn't fathom the fact that all of the grounders were led by a woman. And their fight against it, for the most part, was... There's no way that this society could be run by like a little girl, and that's why they felt the need that they had a right, or they felt the right to take over because like they're big strong men and they know better. Um, 
and the well, Sky people are horrible. But the fact that like Lexa could have kicked their asses mm-hmm. unless Clark came along, I think, kind of falls into what they were promising. It just took them a really long time to get there. I could talk about that show for years. <laughs> um, so we just have a few minutes left. Um, so if anyone wants to tell a happy story about how <laughs> a, a, a positive representation made them feel, um, we can just uh, move on to the wrap-up segment. So I just wanted to um, kind of plug fact and science fiction. Um, I don't talk about gender and sexuality every episode, but as a queer person, it comes up a lot because um, I'm definitely critical about how sci-fi portrays people. Um, I have an interview coming up with uh, Marlene Forte from Altered Carbon, as well as a uh, doctoral candidate who studies uh, Jupiter and space and I love space, gays love space and uh, so tune into that, it's available on all the podcast apps so um, look up Fact and Science Fiction and Michelle, where can people find you? On a completely less serious note I have a podcast called There's Something in the Air and it's a spoiler filled Winona podcast, Winona Earth podcast where occasionally we talk about Winona Earth it's not at all serious and uh, you should probably check it out. Uh, if you go to herbswainpod.com, you can get all our info there. And we're available on everything except Stitcher. Really? Uh, are you on Spotify? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> if somebody figures that out, let me know. Um, and then we're also going to be launching a new podcast. Um, called The Binge Doctors, because we're really good at binging. Um, It's TBD. Um, And so there we'll just ramble about shows that aren't Winona Earp. We're figuring it out. But that's going to be coming. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate it. If you haven't gotten a sticker, thank you. Haven't gotten a sticker, um, Jess with a Marry Your Gay shirt has some for you.